Hey there! Are you tired of waiting for the next episode of It's Probably Not Aliens? Well, we've got some good news for you. On Nebula, our streaming service, you can get access to all our episodes a week early. That's right, you'll never have to wait again to hear Scott and I debunk the latest ancient astronaut theory or get a movie fact wrong. But that's not all. Nebula is home to dozens of content creators we know you like, so you can find all your favorites in one place. Plus, we post content on there that you won't find anywhere else. And the best part? By signing up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash probablynotaliens, you're directly supporting the show and both of us. So don't wait any longer. Join Nebula today and listen to the next episode right after this one. You'll first be not hearing uh, Scott. Um, Scott is not available tonight, but I have a very special guest for you. I am very excited about this. I want to introduce Lena Vincent, uh, a astrobiologist, uh, to talk about, we've talked a lot about on this show, about times when it was probably not aliens, but maybe this time we can talk about the times when it might actually be aliens and what that might look like. So yes, welcome to It's Probably Not Aliens. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, I found you because I was scrolling through TikTok one day, as you do, and the masterful algorithms that tell you and give you things came across you doing a series that seems to be doing very well, where you basically take science fiction aliens uh, and rate them on a scale of plausibility, coolness factor, and what's the third one? Creativity. Creativity. There you go. And it has been, uh, it's been a fun ride. And uh, the channel also has lots of stuff talking about your work as a, an astrobiologist and what that actually means. And uh, all of the like laboratory work you're doing. You talked a lot about your anaerobic chamber recently. And I am a history PhD dropout who talks about why the history channel's bad. So uh, we're, we're in a very uh, different place, but I'm really excited to get you on for this, this thing. Yeah, I'm excited to chat about aliens. Yeah. I imagine you think about them a lot, given your line of work. Yeah, but probably not in the way a lot of people think. <laughs> yeah, for real. Uh, one of the coolest things I think really, uh, I was like, I need to get this person on the show, was you did a explainer on the Fermi paradox and your sort of problems with it, but then also series of uh, videos talking about alternate chemistries for the basis of life itself. And that's when I was like, okay, uh, we've done so many things where we're just like absolutely blown away by the, um, the, the real odd takes on display. And so I was like, I want to, I want to do something more positive. What is it going to be? What is alien? So, uh, besides your TikTok, is there anything else that you want everybody to know about? No. Yeah. No, I guess that I'm a, I'm a PhD student studying astrobiology. So I literally, you know, I've dedicated at least this part of my academic career to trying to answer this question of are we alone? Does alien life exist? But from the perspective of trying to understand what life is in the first place and how it gets started on planets like Earth and maybe planets not like Earth. So yeah, 
Now, out of academic curiosity, this feels like a uh, super interdisciplinary field, I would imagine. Oh, it absolutely is. I mean, you can think if you're if you're trying to answer questions like what is life and are we alone, um, that is far beyond the scope of a single discipline. So it really does take uh, integration of approaches and people who have lots of different areas of expertise, anything, literally anything you can think of uh, within the sciences, sciences is relevant and, and beyond the sciences too. You know, if you're asking questions like what is life and does it exist elsewhere, we're talking about ethics, history of science, philosophy, things like that. So there's really anything you can think of in terms of disciplines, features in astrobiology. And that's a very important part. And it's also, in my opinion, what makes astrobiology so exciting. Yeah. Two things that really blew me away from your work. One, I did not know that astrobiologists actually do science in laboratories. I thought it was kind of more of the thought experiment scene or like a philosophy thing. Uh, the first question though, I do want to bring up, and this relates to a TikTok video you did, but it was also the subject of the first and second video, first and second episode of this podcast. Sorry, I'm a YouTuber, so I'm still stuck in thinking like that. Uh, and that I always, my thinking about aliens and the answer of like, what's out there? Why haven't we heard anything? Always comes to the Fermi paradox. And I talked through a book that I had read that had 80 different answers to the Fermi paradox, ranging from all sorts of different answers to from that things like mitochondria make like, you know, moving past single cell organisms difficult. Uh, or very rare, to there might be clouds in the sky and the concept of space never gets developed. <laughs> so uh, I, but then you made a really interesting video where you said that the Fermi paradox makes a lot of assumptions and that great filters make a lot of assumptions. And TikTok only lets you talk for about three minutes. So I want to learn a lot more about that if I can. So please, yeah. I, I'd like to hear about your take on the Fermi paradoxes there. Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, the the TLDR is I think that the Fermi paradox is a really interesting way of thinking about this question of if, you know, if we aren't alone, why haven't we found evidence of that fact? Um, and I think it's really interesting to speculate based on what we currently understand about why that might be um, and use these kind of probabilistic frameworks, right? Because that really is ultimately what the Fermi paradox is. It builds off of things like the Drake equation that that give us some broad sense of, of what we should expect in terms of the frequency of of technologically advanced life existing. Um, the problem with probabilistic frameworks is you have to make assumptions, right? You have to actually embed assumptions to come up with numbers at the other end. Uh, and I think, you know, what I tried to express in that video is that we don't know nearly enough. In fact, I would say we know close to nothing about any of the things that would need to be put into those equations to give us a scientifically accurate answer. Um, and so as a result of that, I don't find things like the Fermi paradox, the Drake equation, the great filters, particularly useful scientific concepts in that they can't really guide research on the subject because we just, we're missing a lot of key information and a lot of fundamental understanding about what life is in the first place, which, you know, when it comes down to it, we don't actually know what it is <laughs> um, other than kind of our subjective experiences and this one example of life that we have here on earth. So I think that all of those things are really interesting to think about. They're very thought provoking. And I think they make for great sci-fi stories. And, um, you know, they they kind of make us lean towards optimism or pessimism, depending on who we are and how much weight we put behind them. But as scientific concepts, I don't think they do very much in terms of guiding astrobiologists in, in how they should actually look, go about looking for life elsewhere. 
Um, so yeah, I think that's kind of my, my general take on that is that, um, I think they're really cool to think about, but not super scientifically useful. No, that is the very scientist answer. Like it's an interesting philosophical thing, but I can't answer this question with an experiment. Like, yeah. Um, it's, I guess, not falsifiable. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and like a few of these, um, and great filters are sort of in the same thing with assumptions and things like that. Cause like, I remember, um, my moment where I was like, oh, we are probably pretty alone out there was when I heard about mitochondria and how they were like an absolute, like a really, really low chance of really happening. And I was like, yeah, oh, go ahead. So no, so that's the, that's the kind of assumption that I think is problematic because based on, you know, the history, the, the extant life we have today, and based on the kind of inferred evolutionary relationships that we can kind of extract from, from extant life and work our way backwards and things like that. It, it, from, with the conceit of hindsight, it does appear that that event, right, that engulfment of a arche- an ancient Archean engulfing an alpha proteobacterium, which became mitochondria, seems really rare because we only have evidence of it happening once. But that's in the lineage that of shared ancestry that gave rise to life as it exists today. We don't know if similar kinds of engulfments might have happened either in parallel or before that one particular instance of engulfment that we now have evidence of in extant life. And yes, we we haven't observed those kinds of engulfments happening now, but you know there could be lots of explanations for that, right? Maybe we're just not looking in the right place. Maybe they are happening and we just don't see them. Uh, maybe the conditions of you know the Earth on a global scale is not conducive to those kinds of engulfments. Maybe the right kinds of selective pressures are not currently acting. And in fact, you know, similar kinds of engulfments have happened multiple times in the history of life. They gave rise to plastids, chloroplasts in plants. Um, there have been secondary endosymbioses. So I, I, the point I'm trying to make is that what seem what appear to be rare events, we don't actually have very much scientific evidence to, to suggest that that's the case. It's kind of cliche, right? But absence of evidence is an evidence of absence. And that's absolutely the case for, for events like these. So yeah, so I think those are the kinds of assumptions that I think we still have a lot of work to do before we can actually say that with any kind of certainty. Fair. So then as a scientist, uh, I, I have to ask, like, you're working with one of the hardest things to deal with in science, which is uh, an N1. Like you have a sample size of one uh, case where you can verify that life happened. And I'm curious about what kind of unique challenges that brings up in a field like science is driven by data and analysis and uh, usually by trying to get a big sample. So I'm curious what you have to say on that. Oh, so there, there are so many issue co- problems that stem from that. And also there are other problems that compound this, this end of one, right? The fact that we can't turn back time and watch things happen as they did uh, on the early earth to try to understand how life originates in the first place. Um, the fact that, you know, life tends to operate, at least in terms of its evolutionary history, is very long and drawn out, right? And far beyond the, the scope of a single lifetime. So there are lots of issues, but I think one of the biggest problems with with having an end of one in terms of one example of life that is united by a shared ancestry um, is that we can't really, from that, first of all, come up with a universal definition of life, right? Because we don't have other examples or instances of life that we can compare to the, the kind of current instantiation that we're familiar with to try to come up with general principles that might apply to other forms of life as well. Um, we also, depending on some philosophers of science, they would go as far as saying that we don't even know if life is definable. So not only can we not perhaps have a definition of life, we don't even know if life is a definable thing because we don't know if it represents a real or natural category that is actually beyond just um, the subjective kind of perception that we have as, as human beings. So uh, there's a whole bunch of problems with that too, that in science, so like why should, why should we try to define life if it's not definable? Well, because a lot of science hinges upon being able to describe 
qualitatively what it is we're talking about, right? So if we if we if we make a claim like we found life on another planet, but we aren't on the same page about what life is, then that's a bit of a problem. You know, not just for scientists, but also for for just people as a whole, right? Like how do we have a common language to talk about things like life if we don't even know how to define it? So yeah, the N equals one thing is a big problem. Um, and that's that's kind of priority number one right now for astrobiologists is, is figuring out how to make progress in the absence of an N of greater than one. And there might be a couple of ways to do that. Life from scratch. Um, Making life from scratch, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's actually a pretty good part of your research. Uh, you kind of study an area that in biology, chemistry, both, kind of where the two meet each other, really. Um, the field of abiogenesis? Yep, that's right. Yeah, so I study how you get life from non-life in, in very generic terms. Like, how do you how do you start getting chemistry that that starts to behave like life or at least sets the stage for life to emerge from in the absence of life, which turns out is not a trivial thing um, and is at this point still a complete mystery to science. Yeah, I, I mean, studying the conditions of the earth billions of years ago, uh, how, like, what, what is the, I guess, the best hypothesis we have at this point? I don't think there is one. I think there are lots of, of uh, promising hypotheses. There are lots of really good ideas, but so far uh, there is no consensus in the origins of life communities. So the subset of astrobiology that, that studies this question in particular of how you get life from non-life. Um, there are lots of, of pet theories, you know, and they vary depending on, you know, their, their takes on what came first, right? So what was the first step in the origin of life? Uh, where that origin might have happened, right? So Earth is a big place, right? And even on the early Earth, there was probably a lot of heterogeneity in the kinds of environments that existed locally. Where did that happen? Did it happen deep below the sea at a hydrothermal vent? Did it happen at the surface? Um, you know, and each of those conditions are associated with quite, you know, different conditions that could absolutely have a big influence on the type of chemistry that's possible. So lots of really great ideas, no consensus. All we know is that it happened. And that's that's really the best explanation we have so far is that life originated somehow and we are still very much in the dark about what the specific sequence of events was, why it happened, where it happened, when it happened. So unfortunately, no good answer. Just lots of good ideas. Interesting. And I imagine as a scientist, you'd love the mystery of uh, investigating that. Then I know that your research specifically goes into it because uh, you talk about your anaerobic chamber and stuff like that, where you're recreating early Earth's atmosphere and stuff like that. Can you tell us a little bit more about like how you're specifically trying to hack at this question? Yeah. Yeah. So so as I said, you know, everyone kind of has their, their favorite hypothesis about how this happened. And the one that we're exploring in our lab is that the first step in the origin of life was the appearance of basically mixtures of chemicals that could cooperate with each other in a way that maintained the entire group of chemicals uh, in a very kind of defined little environment um, so that they could grow and become increasingly complex over time. And so we are basically trying to validate this model that we have for the appearance of life in the absence of a prior living process from these very simple chemical networks that are built from materials that we hypothesize based on what's currently known about the early Earth might have been present. And we try to recreate those conditions as best we can in a laboratory setting. And one, one aspect that we are trying to recreate is the fact that the early Earth had very little to no atmospheric oxygen uh, in its atmosphere. And so because oxygen is a very uh, special uh, element, right, it's very reactive, we have to account for that, right? So if we introduce oxygen in our experiments, that's a big 
that's a big thing that probably will influence the results of our experiments in a way that might not be representative of how things might have happened on the early Earth. So that's kind of a general sense that picture of what we're doing is just trying to recreate early Earth conditions and see if we find evidence of these kind of early chemical networks that be displayed key properties of life. Now, this might speak to just how outdated my knowledge is on this topic, but um, I seem to recall there being uh, thoughts that lightning would have been involved in this. How do you make lightning in your lab? So we don't, which is very sad because I love lightning. I would love to to uh, you know simulate lightning. Turns out it's pretty dangerous to do and requires some pretty kind of sophisticated setups to do safely <laughs> to be OSHA compliant. Um, but so what we do basically is we assume that the process processes like lightning or spark discharge driven synthesis of life's building blocks has already happened. Um, so the, the experiment that most people are familiar with is this Miller-Urey experiment, which was the first demonstration that you could make a lot of life's building blocks, things like amino acids, nucleotides in the absence of life, which at the time was not a trivial thing, right? That that When those experiments were done, it was thought that kind of if you could explain the origin of those molecules, you could explain the origin of life. Turns out we know that's not true because we know you can make those molecules in the absence of life. The bigger question is, how do you get those building blocks to assemble or organize into systems that can do the characteristic processes of life, things like evolution, self-propagation, growth, things like that? So that's what we're trying to do. So we're taking the outputs of experiment like that, uh, the milliliter experiment that involved lightning and saying, okay, well, now what, right? How do you take this flask of amino acids, which, yes, are related to life in the sense that life, a lot of life's molecules are made out of those amino acids, but those aren't life, right? That, that beaker or, or flask of amino acids is not life. How do you get life out of that? That's what we're trying to do in my lab. And now, because like, I do remember in the past that there was the moment where we didn't have a definition for what a planet was. And then when we defined it, we, uh, it made everyone very much up in uproar because uh, Pluto got uh, demoted. But, uh, and you just mentioned that we don't have a working definition of life. So how would you know if your experiment's successful? So the way that any astrobiologist, any origin of life scientist kind of uh, circumvents this problem, or at least acknowledges it, is by clearly defining what they mean by life, right? So because we don't have a universal definition, the best we can do is to have these what we call operational definitions, which are kind of like draft definitions that we use to formulate hypotheses and define what a, what a particular finding means. Uh, but, you know, acknowledging that there are other ways to interpret what life is, right? So we just specify that very clearly. And the, the definition that we we tend to use in our laboratory, which is, it's a pretty popular definition because it came out of a NASA working group that they put together years and years ago to try to come up with a, a universally applicable definition. Um, and that definition is, uh, is basically that life is a self-sustained chemical system capable of undergoing Darwinian evolution. So the key terms here are self-sustaining, right, which kind of alludes to the fact that you can sustain oneself in space and time kind of makes you think of growth and reproduction. And then the other key part, of course, is evolution. So in our lab, really, the, the two pieces we're looking for is that is exactly that self-reproduction and evolution. Okay, that makes sense. Otherwise, you might have to deal with like, are crystals alive and stuff like yes, that? Exactly. Yes. Okay. And so you're studying all these really, really cool questions of, yeah, like where, where chemistry meets biology for the first time. And, oh man, um, there's, there's so much like nerdy stuff with long words that I would love to talk about with you, but this is a show where we have been responding to a television series, uh, by the name of ancient aliens and even more fun in the very biological sense in the last few episodes, uh, that we have been covering 
they've covered the idea of aliens reproducing with humans, which has to be possibly the most wrong thing of all of the things I've seen. But um, I'm just really curious, as somebody who thinks a lot about extraterrestrial life, who studies the nature of life, when you see something like, even even if it's something like uh, ancient aliens or UFO people or kind of people who have these uh, assumptions about extraterrestrial life that are really you know, baked into our public uh, understanding of what extraterrestrial life is going to be like, uh, where do people in your field sort of feel about this kind of aspect of the cultural understanding of something that you're like, it's your nine to five or you're a grad student, your nine to nine uh, job. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting because I think, and I I don't want to speak for all astrobiologists, of course, but it's funny because these specific representations of aliens and discussions about aliens really don't feature in our, in our discussions at all. Right. We, we really are trying to tackle this from a scientific perspective and that leads us to very specific hypotheses and different, you know, scenarios for what alien life might look like and, and, our potential interactions with it. Um, but, you know, the, the UFO stuff and the ancient alien stuff is so far beyond what we can reasonably consider scientifically that it just isn't part of our, like, I, I, it's not ever something I really think about, you know, besides maybe as a source of entertainment. Um, because I think there are just so many truly scientifically tractable mysteries left to resolve in astrobiology that there's really no time to be wasting thinking about, you know, ancient alien astronauts and reproduction with humans, because that is just, that's just not something that follows logically from what the science is telling us. And it's also not something we can really tackle scientifically either. You know, there's nothing there for us to think critically about and say, well, based on our understanding, this and that. No. Um, so I think it's really fun. I, th- I find it very entertain- <laughs> entertaining for various reasons, but it's just so far removed from what an astrobiologist thinks about on a daily basis that it really doesn't feature prominently, at least in my mind. And I assume, you know, other astrobiologists, at least in academia, are at least as busy as I am, <laughs> if not more. Um, so I imagine that's also the same for them. Do you have much uh, crossover or uh, relationship with like SETI people? So I do, I do, I do have colleagues who who are involved with SETI um, because my specific work is, is more trying to understand this question of, you know, what is alien life and how can we define alien life based on our understanding of life here on earth and how it originated and what different ways there might be for life to be alive, including alternative chemistries. I don't often think about this question of searching for, um, you know, technologically advanced life or even intelligent life. Um, so it does not, I, I don't do any work directly myself with with SETI or with people who work with SETI, but I I do have colleagues that that do. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you'd be just as excited if we were to find that anyway. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I guess like the one thing, uh, and I kind of wanted to veer into this question because you probably the best person, one of the best people in the world probably to answer um, what kinds of things would happen when it actually is aliens this time. Like I've been around, uh, I, one of my inspirations for this podcast was the Oumuamua flyby and how some people still to this day are thinking some stuff about solar sails. I don't know how to feel about that because I'm a history major. So, um, but uh but like, I think about things like how we're always hearing news stories because it seems like science journalists, if you can make the headline sound as much like aliens as possible, then go through it. Like there's this recent story with radio signals or something like that coming from the center of the galaxy. Um, what kinds of language for, for us lay people uh, should we look out for to see that, you know, something might be legit, like that they're really on to something? Say, uh, what's what's the new Kepler called? Um, oh, the James Webb Space Telescope? Yeah, like if James Webb finds something that's legit or if, say, uh, you're really excited about the mission, uh, potential missions to places like Enceladus or Europa, 
what would be the things to look out for for when like oh no this this is the legit thing yeah so i think it it there there are kind of there are a few scenarios but the the two big ones and it and the kind of language you might expect to hear if such a discovery is made might vary depending on those two scenarios so one is we you know if we find evidence of life here within our solar system through some kind of in situ mission that we've deployed so things like a rover or a quadcopter like we're going to be sending to titan where a, or a robot, some kind of robotic uh, lander is present there and sending us back a signal, but it's taking kind of in situ measurements versus things like what James Webb is going to be looking at, which are planets much, much farther than what's in our solar system, exoplanets, so extrasolar systems, um, which we would call remote detections, right? So you can actually do remote detections for objects in the solar system as well. Um, but at least for exoplanets right now, our observations are limited to this kind of remote format. Um, either way, though, one of the big things you might hear is biosignature. Uh, biosignature is sometimes also called a biomarker. Biosignature is a slightly more kind of general term. Uh, for any kind of observable or measured thing, whether that's a pattern, a chemical trace, uh, a specific signature of some kind embedded in isotopes, fancy things like that, that can only be produced by life. Things that we have identified as being, I guess, smoking guns for life that can't easily be explained by alternative non-living processes. So a biosignature uh, is as a word that might feature in a headline, you know, um, a key biosignature detection made on Mars suggests, you know, evidence of past or present life, something like that. Um, and so biosignatures come in many, many different flavors, right? Some of those, some of those can be detected um, in situ using in-situ measurements. Some of them can be done remotely. So the, the thing that James Webb is primarily going to be looking for are biosignature gases uh, present in exoplanet atmospheres, because that's really the only thing it can gather. Um, yeah, because I, I do recall hearing that there was something like this in regards to Venus's atmosphere about a year ago. Right. Yeah. So that was the phosphine gas detection in its atmosphere. It turns out that that was a bit controversial. Um, you know, there's question about whether that detection was actually made, if it was uh, an artifact from the data processing or the actual data collected itself. But it was is sort of touted as a biosignature gas. Now, I think that story highlights a big problem, which is that we don't currently have good, reliable biosignatures, even for life as we understand it, which is pretty incredible if you think about it, that we don't have really good, solid uh, bio smoking guns for life, even as we understand it, which as you might imagine, gets even more complicated when you're talking about forms of life that don't share ancestry with life here on earth. You know, how could you possibly come up with a, a measurement, something we can detect objectively that gives us incontrovertible evidence of life? Um, and that is kind of, that is the crux of the problem, that that is the biggest issue we have in astrobiology right now is coming up with those biosignatures. But that is probably the, the, the word that I would look out for in headlines. And I know that Enceladus and Europa are like the two good candidates because of, uh, they kind of get molded like pizza dough by Jupiter's gravity. And so I also know that those have, um, I think it's called cryovolcanism, like they have mm -hmm. ice volcanoes. Would that have, has that shown anything at least interesting? Yes. Yeah, so um, when Cassini was was active, so it was a probe sent primarily to explore, um, you know, the outer solar system, uh, Saturn, uh, it actually did a few, few flybys through um, the plumes of ice that are ejected from the from this uh, kind of cryovolcanic activity at the south pole of Enceladus, which is a moon of Saturn. Uh, so it flew through these plumes of ice that are thought to originate from Enceladus's subsurface ocean. It actually made a lot of interesting detections, um, some inorganic things, but also some organic molecules that resemble lipids. So 
Um, that's really promising. Now, of course, I should say that the detection of organics doesn't equal the detection of life, but it is very promising. It does suggest that uh, conditions on Enceladus are, are conducive to the production of things we know are associated with life here on Earth. So that's very promising and part of the reason I'm so excited about these icy moons. Yeah, that's 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 a really good answer. I, I'm trying to think, I can't think of anything great follow-up to that. Yeah. But um, the other thing is that you are very invested in uh, science communication. I did I did all the research. I found the old PowerPoint TikToks um, from uh, from when you were first starting. But like you've made uh, science communication a pretty big part of your work, and I really appreciate that as someone who appreciates science while um, you know being firmly stuck in the humanities. But uh, I am curious about uh, how you got into science communication and specifically about how you decided to do TikTok specifically. Yeah. So I've been doing science communication for a while, you know, long before I started doing so on TikTok. Um, But I was doing it through, I guess, what I would consider more traditional channels. So um, doing a lot of outreach here locally, you know, at, at, at places like retirement homes, schools, and just getting the word out there about my research, but also just astrobiology in general. And that's something I've, I've loved to do, you know, since as long as I've been a scientist. Uh, and, you know, I guess, how did I transition to TikTok? Well, so last year I downloaded it around the same time a lot of other people did, um, just as a form of entertainment, uh, you know, just to consume humorous TikToks and, and content. And um, I guess it was it was towards the end of this the summer this year that I stumbled upon a side of TikTok I hadn't really seen before. And that was this learn on TikTok movement. So it wasn't just, you know, funny stuff. It was actually educational stuff relating to things all the way from, you know, how to create a budget, you know, how to use this photo editing software where people were just sharing their expertise in a very bite-sized fashion. And I thought, wow, that's so interesting. I did never consider TikTok as an educational platform. And I'm not sure what compelled me to post that first video about PowerPoint. I, I don't know. I felt like, you know, TikTok needs to know about this PowerPoint history that most people don't know about. And so I recorded this video and uh, it blew up uh, somewhat surprisingly. And from there, I continued to make that a series. And eventually, as I started to gain a following, I was like, you know, I wonder if people would be interested in my science, you know, and, and maybe this could be an excellent opportunity to talk about science and get the word out about astrobiology. And sure enough, there was interest. And yeah, that's kind of how I got into it. Excellent. And uh, I found you through, uh, I think, one of your more uh, current series, The Astrobiologist Rates Aliens, mm-hmm. uh, where... Uh, just to show how far in advance we record these episodes, where you just did sandworms from Dune because Dune just came out last week uh, here in the Americas. So um, I'm curious about what your uh, motivation was for starting that particular project and how well that's gone. So I'm a huge, I love sci-fi. Sci-fi is my favorite genre. I've and I've been thinking about the alien depictions that feature in those sci- in those sci-fi pieces for a long time. Never, but for most of my life, now as an astrobiologist. Um, and I think the first time I had that idea was when I was watching similar series, you know, on YouTube, things from Wired and GQ, where they have a, an expert in something come react to, uh, different scenes and films that have to do with their area of expertise. And I was like, oh, it's interesting that they haven't had an astrobiologist, you know, come and rate alien movies. <laughs> um, and so I was kind of inspired by that, had some long-term plans to do that on YouTube, uh, even before I started my TikTok. And when I started to amass a TikTok following, I was like, you know, this would actually be a really excellent way to draw people in the astrobiology, right? Because people love sci-fi, regardless of whether they f- they know that astrobiology is a thing or whether they're interested in astrobiology. So this might be an excellent entry point to get people to, to show them that astrobiology, this area of expertise is a real thing um, that you can do, that anyone can do, right? If they're interested in doing so. 
Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of how the idea came about. It's, it's, I thought it would be fun kind of for selfish reasons, because I, I want to rate aliens, but also as a, as a potential tool to hook people into learning more about astrobiology. Yeah, and you haven't just done the classics. Uh, you've done, I think you did one from the video game Halo. I think you did a mm-hmm. Mass Effect one. And um, yeah, like and recently you did Dune, which like uh, that's a classic. So um, yeah. yeah, it's been a really good series. Uh, to kind of round out the conversation, I would love to hear what kind of thing about astrobiology you wish more people knew about. Yeah, well, first I wish they knew, I wish more people knew it was a thing, a real area of science that one can pursue as a, as a scientific career, uh, because it's still an up and coming field that a lot of even other scientists don't know about. So, you know, and that was really one of the primary motivations behind starting to talk about astrobiology on my TikTok channel is to just get the word out and, and use the, the reach potential that TikTok has that I think is, is sort of unique to it compared to other social media platforms to really just get the word out there about astrobiology. So I think that's number one. And then the other thing is that there are just so many exciting opportunities, uh, you know, to do things like work with, with lots of scientists from lots of different fields, you know, be really at this nexus between different disciplines. Um, and because of that, there being a lot of jumping off points, right? So even if you don't stay interested in astrobiology for your entire career, you can jump into different things. So it's a very versatile uh, area of research that in and of itself is super interesting, but there's lots of potential to cross over to other areas of science. Um, so I think, yeah, just knowing that there's a very fruitful career potentially in astrobiology for people who are interested in doing research. Yeah. Maybe if one of those missions to Enceladus actually gets greenlit, there might be a lot of desire for uh, trained astrobiologist and a PhD does not take, you know, it's not quick. So get in while the getting's going. Absolutely. All right. Uh, before we say goodbye, unfortunately, cause this is a really fun interview. Um, could, where can people find stuff that you're doing on the internet? Yeah. So most of my science communication content is on my TikTok. My handle is at charm quarks with a Z at the end. And I also have an Instagram where I've recently started also posting my TikTok content and making original posts for Instagram specifically. And my handle is the same there at Charm Quirks. Hey everyone, Scott here. You thought I wasn't gonna be in this episode. I wish I was. That was a fun conversation. Just wanted to let you know that it seems uh, Lena has changed their TikTok handle to be at AstroBioLena instead. I uh, just wanted to make sure that information was correct out there. There will be links in the description of this podcast episode, as always. I'll have I'll let Tristan end this one. Bye bye. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Uh, soon to be Dr. Vincent. So uh, have a have a great one. And yeah, everybody else, uh, this is it's probably not aliens. If you want to subscribe to the show, uh, you can find it on all the places where podcasts are found. You can also uh, go to at it's probs not aliens pro- at probs not aliens. Wow, uh, fall apart without Scott at Probs Not Aliens on Twitter. And, you know, five-star reviews are things that we thrive on and sharing things with your friends because we don't have a For You page for your podcast. So you got to just get the word out to to friends. And uh, yeah, um, as I always say, the truth is out there. Probably. Probably.